Hello, and welcome to another episode of Policy Pod. In this episode, we'll be speaking to Dr. Amelia Holland and Dr. Simon Fraser about the MELD B project here at the University of Southampton. The MELD B project utilizes data from a variety of different data sets to be able to build an understanding of the effects of various conditions on individuals and when those conditions start to make themselves known. So, Amelia, I suppose we'll start with a traditional question. What did you do for A-levels? <laughs> um, so I, I've always been interested in science. So I did biology, chemistry, physics, and I did AS maths. Um, and uh, uh, ha- how did those A-levels go? When, where, where did you go for your undergraduate degree? Uh, so they went well. I went to Cambridge. I did natural sciences as my first degree. Um, and after that, um, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I was thinking about doing a PhD, um, but as part of the milk round there at the university, I got a job. Uh, I worked in banking then for five for five years. Um, and I, as part of doing that work, I, I became interested in IT. I actually moved from the department I was into to the department in IT that was supporting that role. Um, but I think sort of deep down, I sort of made a decision at 16 that I didn't want to be a doctor and I decided not to do that, but I'd always really regretted that. So I... Um, I actually left that job and and I went to work in a laboratory to do HIV research. This and is was, suddenly a big change. That's really bold yeah, to be able really, to say, okay, that's that's enough of that now. Yeah, um, right, I okay. had. I mean, what I had done is I'd saved up quite a lot of money doing that job to to finance, you know, what I did in the future. Um, and then actually, while I was there, I, I really enjoyed that actually, and I was thinking I might carry on and do a PhD there. That was the plan, really. But um, I was doing that at St George's in London and they'd just recently started the graduate entry medicine programme. So instead of five years, it was four years. Um, and it just seemed like, you know, really perfect opportunity because I think in my head I was thinking I might be able to do the PhD a bit later on in my life, but, you know, medicine kind of now or never. So I applied for that and got into that. So I did that. That was four years of training. Um and then I did my foundation jobs in London. And then I started off in GP training. I actually had, had my first child at that time and then started off in GP training. Um, but again, I'd I'd been interested in public health training um, for a while. And so I subsequently transferred into the public health training scheme in 2012. So I've been on the training scheme for quite a while now. Um, absolutely love it. Um, it's definitely been the right move for me. And um, at the moment, the, the way I've come into this project is I, as part of my training, um, there's the option to do um, some research. So I moved into uh, do an academic placement at the University of Southampton. So towards the end of 2020, I got that opportunity and it was virtual, of course, because of COVID. Um, but I'd known Simon because he was previously on the training scheme as well. And then that was how I became involved in the project. Excellent stuff. Thank you. It's a really lovely journey. Um, and Simon, how about yourself? What did you do for A-Levels? So similarly to Emilia, I did um, chemistry, biology and physics, but then I also did art. Um, and art was the uh, the big escape for me. It was a, It was a practical art A-level course. And so I used to sort of enjoy going up to the art school and throwing paint at a canvas as a nice release from the sort of uh, chemistry and physics that I slightly struggled with. But uh, yes, yeah, so so then after that, I was, I was sort of not quite sure whether to pursue the art a bit more, but I actually decided to be very sensible and go into something that would probably pay the bills. So um, initially, I thought I wanted to be a vet. 
as I think probably a few medics do. And I applied to vet school and um, went went for an interview at uh, at Bristol, and it was in a very imposing hall. And I sat in front of this interview panel, and they said, you know, that that killer question: um, What have you got that everyone else hasn't got? And uh, and I was thinking, do you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I've I've uh, and uh, you know, I'd become aware of all these people who had grown up, uh, you know, with on farms or aware of it all. And I'd read a bit of James Herriot and thought it was a nice idea. You know, that's really where I was at at the age of eighteen or whatever it was. So anyway, that led to me deciding to um, train in medicine. So I had the opportunity to come to Southampton to train in medicine. So. I still, I now work at the University of Southampton, so you could say I haven't escaped very far from Southampton. So I'd, I'd, I uh, trained in medicine here, and um, when I qualified, um, I had, um, you know, been doing a lot of thinking. I think a lot of people go through medicine not quite sure what they want to, what they want to be. And I was interested in a lot of things, and so I went down the route of training to be a GP um, because it just seemed like a good broad. Uh, you know, covered a lot of interests. And I was interested in people, uh, more interested in people than in, um, you know, probably highly technical medicine at that point. Um, so I went through a GP training process and uh, that was that was great fun. It involves working in various different hospitals and GP surgeries and things. Um, and then I got invited to uh, join a partnership also here in Southampton. Now, it hadn't been my intention to uh, uh, to, to do that and stay in Southampton. But at the time, being a, being a GP partner was something that a lot of people wanted to do. It wasn't now, you know, nowadays um, that it's hard, you know, GP is, is, is hard to recruit people to. Um, but at the time, it was quite competitive. So this was quite a, a good opportunity. So I was then a GP in Southampton. Um, again, not in not into research at all, just trying to do a really good job being a GP in um, in in Southampton. And I did that uh, for about ten years. And then during that time, I mean, I think I'd always known that I wasn't going to stay in general practice, and it was actually quite hard to to then leap out of it again. But I became interested in this idea of public health, and there were two main reasons for that. I think the first reason was that as a GP, you're very reactive to everything that's that's coming at you through the door. You spend your day in 10-minute increments with people coming in with their problems and you're sort of batting them off and you have very little opportunity to do something proactive or, um, as we might say in, in public health, sort of upstream, anything to sort of try and prevent the, the, the sort of relentless demand. Um, and so I was already thinking, you know, surely there are, there are ways of dealing with some of these problems other than just firefighting all the time. And I think the other thing I became aware of was that, um, you know, within my GP practice area, there were some fairly well-to-do areas and there were some pretty, um, you know, uh, poor areas. And I just became very aware of the, the differences in health experience between those two, two things. And I, and I felt that rather powerless to be able to do anything about that beyond the the population of people that I was um, looking after. So I, I sought opportunities in, in public health, which, as Emilia mentioned, is how I was very fortunate to get on the, the public health training program here in Wessex. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a five-year training program, so it's like training to be a, a specialist in other areas. 
And I did that alongside still being a GP for quite a while. So I did the two in parallel. So I actually was a, a GP partner in total for about 16 years while I was training in public health. And um, during the public health training process, I became interested in research as being a, a, a real tool for improvement. Um, and having worked, if you like, at the coalface of general practice for many years, I was I was fairly happy to sort of stay, step back a bit and take a very strategic approach to, you know, where could my skills be best used? Um, so I became interested in, in research and I was very fortunate to get a role here at the University of Southampton um, to do both research and teaching. So, uh, you know, I enjoy teaching medical students and teaching on the on the masters in public health here in Southampton. But um, that's that's how that's how I got involved in research. There we go. So a, a loss to the animal kingdom, but a, a, a benefit for uh, for others upstream and, and downstream during that period of time. Probably not much of a loss to the animal kingdom. <laughs> if um, so it's it's really interesting to hear the different plotted histories for you, and the and, and I think just to be able to reflect on the amount of time for the for the training and for the careers that you that you've had, and and the layer layering of that over over time. I wonder we're here to talk about meld B today, but of course meld B is the the second part um, of the uh, 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 of the meld journey. I wonder if if you could um, uh, take a pass at talking us through the initial project and then where where we get to now. Shall I answer that one? Um, so uh, the the opportunity came from the National Institute for Health and Care Research (NIHR) to um, apply for. Um, funding around the topic of multimorbidity. Now, just to explain that term, um, multimorbidity is a term that sounds uh, a bit grim if, if you're not quite sure what it means. It essentially means having um, more than one long-term condition at a time. There's been various definitions, but long-term conditions like diabetes or asthma or um, Parkinson's disease or whatever are, are hard enough to cope with on their own. But if you're dealing with more than one of those in at the same time, and, and that can be really challenging. And the situation we have in this country is, is you know, an aging population. And we have a situation where having multiple long-term conditions is becoming therefore more common, partly because the population is aging, um, but also because treatments are getting better and, and quality of life has generally improved over previous decades. So people are living with conditions like this for, for much longer. So the opportunity came from NIHR to say, well, there's lots of people living with these issues. How could we better manage things? How should the, the NHS be structured? Can we do something around prevention of, of all of this complexity. Um, and they, at the same time, they were also interested in drawing on strengths from other, um, other fields. So um, working out how different combinations of uh, conditions affect people differently can get extremely complicated extremely quickly. And so um, the thinking was, well, maybe um, artificial intelligence has some way of helping us understand the relationships between conditions and the way things develop and perhaps give some keys to prevention and treatment that we could we could take advantage of in the future. 
And so the first project uh, that you mentioned, MELD, was the opportunity to, to apply for a small amount of money which brought together people in medicine, public health, but also with mathematicians, AI experts, computer science experts, in order to put together a proposal for a piece of research that was much more substantial, to do, if you like, the proof of principle work that said, can we take uh, some health data can we um, look at that using clever AI-type methods? And does it tell us something about the way in which these conditions combine and affect people? So in, in the MELD project, which was only a sort of eight-month project, it's quite a short project, we used two different collections of data. So one of them was a local GP data set from here in Hampshire with about just over half a million people in it. Um, and that was from about 80 GP practices, anonymized data. And we also used um, one of what's called a birth cohort. So birth cohorts are fascinating. They're, they're collections of data from um, several thousand people who were all born in the same week of, in this case, 1970. So nearly 50 years ago, followed at regular intervals across their lifetime. Um, so at birth and um, then a few years later, maybe four or five years later and four or five years after that. And at each of those stages, either the parents or the individuals themselves, once they're old enough, are asked a whole load of questions, an enormous number of questions about their life, their circumstances, not just their health, but the living environment, parenting, school, employment, finances, all kinds of stuff like that. So, so this isn't taking um, pre-existing data for these people. They're not signifiers going through the system. These are people who have uh, ongoing engagement from... Uh, uh, ONS is it to, to be able to have these these conversations? How is that how's that facilitated? Um, so it's all it's all organised as a, as what um, you know a longitudinal birth cohort of which there are now about four or five in the country, um, and they're they're very you know um, significant and complex long term research studies, and obviously they need to go beyond potentially the. The, the working life of any one individual who's mm, currently mm, working on mm. them. So they were set up by, um, well, without going into all the detail, but they're currently managed by by UCL up in London and um, they uh, have a very sort of complex organisational structure to ensure that the individuals are are, are followed up and, and you know, they, tr they do make lots of effort to, to capture um, the data from people as, as time goes on. Um, with with these regular what they call sweeps of data, when they try and get as many people as they can from uh, you know who've been in the cohort all the way along, um, and just to give you an idea, you know they started off with a I think it was about eighteen thousand people at the beginning. Is it about that? Um, and and there's now there's probably only about eight thousand people in each sweep, so that so you can't get everybody. Some some people have sadly died or others moved away or not not being followed up. But, you know, to have 8,000 people who have been followed up every few years across a 50-year period is... is yeah, a fantastic amazing. resource to be able to uh, uh, to apply to all sorts of different research projects to be able to, to get exactly. that information. Exactly. And so, and so what this project was trying to do is to take the information from um, people's uh, life course, so across, across that birth cohort, um, in all of that information about people's life, 
and say, well, if we could do something different uh, early in life, could we prevent the subsequent development of these long-term conditions? And the challenge is that the information about all the long-term conditions is not captured or certainly not captured very well within these birth cohorts and the numbers of people with any combination of those conditions is not very big. So um, what we need to do is we need to use data from um, uh, the large amount of routine healthcare data that's captured um, and this data set in Hampshire was an example in order to have the numbers uh, to then connect those two data sets in a in a clever sort of AI way, not not literally connect because you're not allowed to do that, but but to sort of learn, if you like, from one data set into another data set uh, using um, tools that that uh, machine learning and other techniques can can uh, t can you can can apply. So the the Meld B project is kind of now. The big brother or big sister of of meld that was a proof of principle thing can we do anything like this that learns across data sets can we uh, uh you know can we apply that um and we found that we could do some useful stuff and we found out you know there were there were things we couldn't do the the joys um, of a proof of concept exactly is, is to be able to get exactly. those but 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 enough sufficiently for for, for nihr to, to see the merit of this of this work and to and want to go forward for for a more substantial project yes exactly um, yeah. exactly so um uh, so so with with Melby as it as it stands at the moment you're in the really early stages uh, i suppose of this uh, of this project funding has been received in the last is it four months six months something like that we actually had confirmation of the funding um about nine or ten months ago um, but the project started in in june 22 that was the fight that was the first sort of kickoff and and when you when you start a project like this, there's an awful lot of um, sort of regulatory approvals and, and you know, careful sort of governance and ethics things that you need to go through to get it up and running. And we're still in the process of that to acquire data and so on. So, um, uh, Amelia, with the with the data sets that um, that were used in in Meld, it's it's a different uh, range of data sets which are being used for for Meld B. Could you talk us through some of those data sets and the and the access to those? Um, so the so in terms of the birth cohorts, we are using one the, the same one that we used in the development award, which is BCS seventy, which as Simon's described is a you know fantastic resource. Um, people born in nineteen seventy who were who have been followed up over time, and we also have um, another one called um, NCDS, which is the National Child Development Survey, and then also ACONF, which is another longitudinal study um, based in Aberdeen. Um, so they're the, they're the birth, birth cohorts and the, the Aberdeen study is based up in, in Aberdeen and then the other two studies are part of the um, uh, UCL, as, as Simon said. In terms of the actual GP health data sets, a really large GP data sets, we are going to be using SAIL, which is a, a, a really large data set covering people living in Wales. Mm -hmm. um, and we have some of our co-applicants who um, have experience working in that data set. So that's absolutely fantastic. And also we're hoping to use CPRD, the Clinical Practice Research Data Link, which again is another really large data set covering people living in England. So clearly having these incredibly um, uh, personal pieces of data across such a, a large swathe of the, of the population, um, 
listeners will be interested to be able to understand what, what safeguards are in place. So I wonder if you can talk through a little about how the project has approached this uh, and what measures have been put in place. Really important question, Giles. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So um, the principles of, uh, of examining uh, large data sets derived from healthcare safely is absolutely central to this kind of work. And within the project, we have um, overall five packages of work. And in fact, we've dedicated a whole work package to exactly this issue, the idea of um, safe data, safe artificial intelligence, the, 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 the correct use of, of the right procedures to ensure that um, people are safeguarded and there's no, you know, there's no risk to uh, the identification of individuals or, or anything like that. There are several processes. And just to give you a, a, a couple of examples, um, so applying to the data sets that we use, like the Sale Data Bank or the CPRD, involves a whole process involving um, de you know, developing a, a protocol specifically for that research, uh, submitting that to a panel of people. Uh, there is then a separate information governance review. There's things you're allowed to apply for, things you're not allowed to apply for, combinations of things. So, for example, if you... Um, if you can imagine that although data, even if data might be anonymized to some extent, if you knew something like uh, a person's ethnicity and you knew their age and you knew their medical problem and you knew their postcode, then you would be well on your way to being able to identify uh, the individual. And of course, that's a high risk. So you're not allowed certain combinations of things like that. You might know something about um, the uh, the, the, a person's age and you might know their ethnicity, but you don't know where they live or, or anything like that. So, um, and then the other issue, which, um, Emilia, you may want to describe this, you have to go through a training process as a researcher for um, accessing some of these data. So, Emilia, what did you have to do to, um, to pass the um, ONS test? So, yes, um, this was a course, I think about four hour course I did one day and then there was an exam to do afterwards. And I must say it was, you know, really quite complicated in terms of certainly the outputs of your data. If you have a, a very low number in any particular category, um, for example, as Simon was saying, you know, females of certain age with certain conditions, for example, you there just is a risk that you might be able to identify who those people are. And so keeping those um, numbers above, for example, 10 or a minimum number so that there's enough people that you couldn't really ever work out who anybody was. So it's really strict training, um, really strict governance um, in terms of the use of this data. And we will all have to go through that data, that process, uh, certainly for using the ONS data. Yeah, and there will be other training and other procedures for using the other data sets. And of the uh, the five work packages for the um, uh, for the research project, one of these is is dedicated towards the. Exactly that. So an entire work package um, looking at, we call them trusted research environments where the data is held because we actually have data from, as I was saying, from Aberdeen, from Swansea, um, there's some national data. So they're going to be held in different places and how we can access that and how we can, because we will be creating some code that we might want to use across the data sets. But can we, you know, how, how do we sh safely share that code to use in different places? So it's really 
really quite complicated and we have a real expert working on that. And, and under slightly different legal um, parameters exactly. with each of those nations. Exactly. The, so the every application well. is different. And so it's taking, a, and as it should, it's taking a lot of time because it's a very complicated process in order to get all the approvals to access all the data safely. Incredibly important for, for this research project, but for projects that come afterwards as well, for you to be breaking ground in this space and being able to, to use data sets exactly. from different nations. Exactly, and we're actually trying to record that as we go along so that actually that's part of the learning as to how we've, you know, what were the steps that were involved, what were the, you know, difficulties we encountered and what can we hand over as a legacy to other people who are trying to use the same data. I mean, also, I think as Simon said, you, you know, which variables did we choose? Uh, so what type, what actual pieces of data did we use, um, say, for something like education? What were the exact pieces of information that we took out of the data set um, to use for that? That's useful to future teams because sometimes, for example, in the birth cohorts, there can be a large number of different pieces of data which are attributable to you know, education or perhaps um, home circumstances. So actually, it's taking a lot of time actually to go through and think, what, what is the exact information that we want to use for this project? Just to say an, another bit on that that's, that people may not know is that um, you, you hear these horror stories, don't you, of CDs getting lost on trains or memory sticks being lost. And at no point does any data get downloaded onto anything um, that, that could be potentially mis, misplaced like that. The analyses are done within these trusted research environments. And we're going to have several of these trusted research environments, as Amelia says, um, where um, you, you have to access through stringent path, you know, pathways to, to do that remotely. You don't download the data onto your own computer or, or memory stick. And I suppose there's there's something around the uh, centralised nature of how healthcare is provided in the UK in comparison to other um, uh, uh, developed nations, uh, whereby this is singularly held by by the NHS, although in different um, uh, uh, settings. Um, so that access to data perhaps is is uniquely easier. Perhaps I, I, I look around the room to see whether, whether it is actually that easy or not for you. Um, whereas this may have been harder to be able to do in uh, uh, in other uh, nations where um, uh, uh, private insurance companies might be holding that that data rather than the central system. Yes, I think that's a, a very good point. I mean, I, I think that. It, it's a people understandably get concerned about data and and the the safety of data, but I do think that in you might not say it's completely unique, but we do have this fantastic opportunity because of the unified nature of the NHS to use the data and and use the information for uh, the benefit of um, people with with um, health issues or trying to prevent health issues because the data are collected in in ways which are not completely uniform, but similar enough to, to mean that we can uh, find out, for example, you know, let's say we wanted to know how many people in the country have a given condition. Well, we can get a very good idea. It, it's, it's not like the census. We can't know absolutely every single thing about everybody, but we can know a lot from very large data collections, which, as you say, if you were in a um, you know, an insurance-based health system, for example, in, in the US, you might have a lot of people in your insurance system, but then you would be uh, confined to, the, to, to that, that single system. So we, we are rather uniquely placed to, to use this kind of information. And, you know, arguably, morally, we should be using this information for the good of society and the, and the good, of, good of people's health. 
So I wonder, we've spoken around some of the uh, the safeguards that are in place and also that we're really in the um, uh, the foothills of uh, uh, of this research project at, at this point. But if we were to cast our eyes ahead to the, the, the sunlit uplands just, just over yonder, um, what are we looking to be able to deliver in terms of, of benefits to, um, uh, to members of the British public from, from the work which is being conducted uh, and also perhaps to practitioners uh, and to policymakers with the findings that you're um, no doubt be able to, to uncover as the project progresses? That's a really good question. And um, I, th- I think just to, just to put a bit of context on that, if I, if I may. So we, we now are in a situation where we have, we have very large numbers of people with multiple long-term conditions. And if the situation is is left to continue, then the pressures on the NHS and the pressures on social care and the pressures indeed on, on lay care, just individuals looking after their, their loved ones or friends or whatever, are, are just going to grow and grow and grow. And this is not going to be sustainable. So the vision of this project is around um, what can we do to prevent um, that train hitting the buffers with a sense of inevitability in the future? How can we prevent um, the the development of what we're calling burdensome, complex, difficult uh, multimorbidity uh, over time? And the thing that we want to really get at in this project is that there is, a, there is an inequity and inequality in in society and in certain groups where certain people are more prone to getting multimorbidity earlier in life so there's a between the the, the sort of richest and poorest parts of the country there's about a 10 year difference in the in the onset of developing multimorbidity and what that means practically is that you know we're in we're in a situation where um, about one in four people overall attending primary care have multimorbidity, but that is not distributed evenly across society. So we're looking to try and find ways in which across people's whole life course, for a whole variety of reasons, they might be at greater risk of developing multimorbidity, and particularly this burdensome, difficult multimorbidity, at an age at which it's going to have really devastating impacts on them. So while they're still of working age, still still trying to make ends meet. And so we're hoping that if we can intervene or, pro- or propose times that we should be intervening earlier in the life course to, to, if you like, steer the ship in a different direction, we will change the outlook for people who may be more prone to developing very difficult and burdensome multimorbidity while they're still trying to, to, to work and um, you know, be productive in society. It's, it's incredibly difficult for um, political actors to be able to view beyond the uh, the next election uh, horizon, and that that five year cycle makes this kind of uh, uh, planning uh, uh, challenging to be able to think about the the life course and the, the and making investment in prevention in order to uh, uh, to to support better outcomes further along the line. This project perhaps gives some reassurance to people making those choices because there is a, an aspect there of being able to say this is how we project the change to be able to be made, which will allow for those resources to be spent in other spaces or to increase output uh, 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 for the UK economy or, or otherwise. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about how that confidence in what the future might look like can be drawn from this project. 
Yeah, a really good question. I mean, I think that um, if you if you bear in mind that the if you take the the working age of say um, people in their late fifties, and in twenty 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 one the population of people in England and Wales in that in in that sort of late late fifties was just over four million people, and um, over one sixth of the population in 2021—that's that's more than 11 million people—were were, were age 65 or over. But if you just consider that that four million, and then you think that among that age group, the 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 prevalence, if you like, the the extent to which those people had multimorbidity in 2002 was about 30 percent of of those people, and it's gone up to about 38 percent in 2014. And obviously, that's still some years ago, so it's probably gone up even higher than that. And that's an age group when you really want people to still be being productive, and you want you want to you know contributing to society and so on. So even if you manage to um, shift the age at which people developed conditions, imagine you didn't manage to prevent them getting the condition at all, but you delayed it. Um, into a later part of people's life, then their ability to to be productive and continue contributing to society would be maintained in those in those crucial years. And I've just picked, you know, slightly at random the late fifties. I could have picked earlier life points in the life course as well. Um, and you know, there's a lot of evidence now that that or, or growing evidence, I should say, that things happening early in life do have a later life influence. And so we should think about. Um, the very early years and and the influence that those have, um, but also, you know, early adulthood and and evidence that um, if you deal with something like mental health issues in in early adulthood, you you might not just be affecting the mental health issues then. You might be having a huge impact at later in life. But this is the kind of thing that we're trying to get to in this project. Um, and, and in the the show notes, we'll include a link to a previous recording uh, of Policy Pod with uh, Professor Mark Hansen and uh, Dr. Shanley Jacobs talking about the uh, the preconception period uh, uh, in advance of, of even the uh, the early years or the or the younger adult period as well, and and that that nudging of the curve. And, and certainly, two of our work packages are involved in modelling. So one of them is looking at the clustering of conditions. So are there certain conditions that tend to occur together? Um, perhaps are there certain conditions that occur first and lead to other subsequent conditions? And we have obviously really um, clever and brilliant sort of mathematicians, etc., that are, are looking at those types of models and different scenarios. And also in our work package four, and we're specifically looking at we call them early life determinants. So are there things that are happening early in people's lives that are leading to multiple long-term conditions? And again, modelling different scenarios, you know, if we intervene um, at this point, you know, what, you know, what would the future look like? Um, and we're trying to look at real critical time points that actually really could make a big difference to the development of multiple long-term conditions. Yeah. I mean, one thinks that the, uh, the 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 findings from this could be so incredibly useful all the way down to you know uh, uh, workforce planning for uh, for the NHS of which particular conditions should we be looking to be able to train the next generation uh, of uh, uh, well both of researchers and of uh, and of clinicians to be able to ensure that there's a suitable uh, uh, amount of people with the right training to be able to match the expectation of where 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 individuals will will be in terms of their uh, uh, presentation of these uh, multi-morbidity conditions at certain stages of the of the life course. 
I think that's right, Giles. And I, and I think um, not only that, a little bit like the, the when I was talking about my own journey from general practice, what you don't want is is for it all to hit, hit the buffers uh, waiting for these conditions to arrive. So as well as targeting the workforce, uh, uh, you know, to treat people appropriately, we also need to target those risk factors as well. So, uh, you know, we need to know not only, um, you know, what we should intervene. We all We all know, for example, now, Beyond a shadow of doubt, smoking is bad for you. But what we what we might find out in this kind of research is to say, well, the app, actually the really crucial time to target that is between the ages of X and Y. Or you know, we might we might know that um, you know alcohol is 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 bad for you in in certain periods of time. But um, we may be able to say much more about when you should target those sort of risk factors. And those are just a couple of risk factors off the top of my head. You know, we all know that uh, obesity is a, an enormous problem in, in society. And and when do you intervene? Do you intervene preconception? Do you, do you intervene in the very early years of life? Do you intervene um, in teenage? And, and that's that's the, the vision that I would say. We're trying to get to those, those population level risk factors as well. But, uh, and again, I think for for individuals having that consultation with their GP, perhaps about something else of which they, they it, it's highlighted in the you know the notes that flash up on the on the screen to prompt the GP to be able to say, well, things that you're doing at the moment that that you've described, we know that you know over the next period of time, it's likely that it could turn into this type of thing or have the consequence of this type of uh, of condition, um, and and empowering the individual to be able to see further down the line about the consequences of the choices that they're choosing to make during that that particular period of time, um, rather than the, the the blanket this this thing is bad, uh, to be able to think about what what that bad means and what the uh, cascade effects may may be that that stems from that um empowering to be able to make individual change uh not just a practitioner or clinician or, or indeed a, a policy level yeah i think that's really important and and emilia you want you might want to talk about the, the the patients and the members of the public that we have involved in this research because that's a really important way in which we're trying to engage with those sorts of things yeah, absolutely. So um, as part of the project, we've recruited or we're still recruiting to at the moment a, a PPI advisory board. And PPI, um, what does that stand oh, for? Oh, sorry. Um, so that's patient and public involvement. And that's, you know, hugely, it's been a hugely important part of our application for the research collaboration and now as part of the project. So our patient and public involvement colleagues will be involved in all the different work packages involving us with their perspectives and their you know helping to shape the work throughout the course of the project so we've recruited um we've recruited now five and we're hoping to get 10 people on on the board they'll be meeting regularly both virtually and in person and and exactly that they're involved in reviewing and discussing all sorts of findings so my my personal work at the moment i'm going to this is the second part but this is about as part of my work i'm going to be carrying out a delphi study which is a um i'm i'm going to be asking patients carers and experts and um, academics and clinicians working in multimorbidity um for can I start with the whole of my stuff? Because it's like yes. quite difficult to go into. Yeah, that's fine. So, so oh, and, uh, and also, um, I, I should have leapt in, but uh, explanation of a Delphi study as well. Yeah, I was yeah. going to give it. So um, I'm working in work package one, and as as part of my work there, 
What I'm trying to do is to find out what makes living with multiple long-term conditions, you know, hard and, and difficult for people. And so as part of that, I'm the first thing I'm doing is doing a, a really big literature review. So I'm looking at all, all the evidence I can find. So both academic literature that's been peer reviewed, also, you know, reports from charities, um, anything else that, that has evidence. And I want to, from that um, literature, try to work out what are the key domains or aspects of living with multiple long-term conditions that makes it really difficult for people. Because actually, arguably, just saying that multimorbidity is two or more conditions takes away from the fact that actually conditions are quite different, aren't they? One one might be just taking a medication every day. One might be a complete radical overhaul of your lifestyle and affect your you know working situation, etc. So I'm going to be doing that qualitative work. So trying to pull out those what we're going to call indicators of, of, of burden, we're calling them. And then what I want to do is sort of validate them. And not only with, um, you know, academics and clinicians working in multimorbidity, but actually with, with patients, with carers that are actually living day to day with these conditions. So we're going to do something that's called a Delphi consensus study. And what it is, is it's basically a survey. It's sent out to a larger number of people and they all fill in the questions individually, anonymously, and then I receive the the results. And um, there'll also be some free text boxes. So I'm going to be saying, you know, which, you know, do you think these different aspects of living with long-term conditions are, do make it challenging, hard for you? And they'll be able to answer those questions and also perhaps suggest rewording of the questions, other, other um, aspects of their lives that they find difficult that I haven't included, perhaps things they want to delete. So, there's several rounds to this survey. So I send out the first round, receive the feedback. And based on that feedback, I will change the survey slightly. But also when I send it out the second time, I will give people, um, they'll be able to see the result they said the first time and the average of all the responses that were given. So they can then think, you know, would they want to change their response in, in, in would they want to change what they think in response to that? Um, and again, they'll, they'll provide feedback to the questions and also answer the questions again. And then I'll perhaps send it out a third time. And the ultimate idea around the sur survey is trying to gain consensus. So is there, you know, perhaps a set level of 70% of this group of people that agree that, you know, car parking at the GP surgery makes it you know, makes living with all these conditions difficult? Is it, you know, all the taking all the multiple medications that are required? So it's a it's a consensus though to really agree with people that that those are things that people genuinely find difficult. And for that we really need involvement of of patients that are living with these conditions that actually live with this day to day and indeed their carers. So that that's an example of where um, patient and public involvement is crucial. We've already had input from um, a great um, PPI colleague who's been reviewing the consent um, form that we've done in the patient information document. Um, and we're producing a blog for MELDB and we've had involvement with shaping the blog because actually, you know, we can write a blog from our perspective, but also, you know, having that input from somebody else that's really thinking about it in often quite a different way is really hugely helpful to the project. So they're absolutely cru crucial. And I mean, NIH are emphasise the importance of PPI involvement. And I, you know, wholeheartedly support that. Because actually, for the, in terms of the output of the project, we're trying to benefit, 
you know, life for patients. So we need their involvement. In in so many policy areas, the um, uh, the endpoint user uh, uh, is perhaps not as well represented as as within medicine. Um, and to to hear how uh, the the PPI um, uh, role is threaded across all of the work packages, rather than standing separately and to to one side, but informing all of those things is is really is really heartening. I think the the particularly that. Understanding that a, a, a policy intervention designed by people who don't have lived experience of the situation is likely to miss things, uh, and indeed the success or otherwise of that uh, of that policy can be determined on whether it is meaningful to those it's intended to be able to to support. Um, so it's it, it's really it's it's really uh, uh, useful to be able to hear how in this project that's um, yeah, that that's so integral to to everything that's that's, that's happening. Sure. One other thing I would just add is that actually, because of the very nature of the project with multiple long-term conditions, they are so varied that actually different patients' experience of living with these conditions is very different. So we really need to, you know, get a diverse input really from patients to really try and understand, you know, the the real life experience for people. And that capturing through the, through this process of um, consensus seeking uh, and being able to uh, pass that back in terms of the findings from the project and indeed on to, uh, uh, to policymakers and, and to practitioners some of those uh, uh, examples that you that you brought forward um, really intriguing to be able to see how that can then be used to shape future policy that comes down the down the line you know maybe it is something because uh, uh, in in terms of the built environment of uh, uh, of parking, or maybe it is something around the types of support and guidance which is given to people to be able to support taking multiple uh, uh, medication on on different cycles, and that tweaks in those spaces uh, uh, found from this work can be incredibly helpful in Im- improving both the uptake uh, of of treatments and the experience of taking those treatments uh, for individuals. Yes, that's right. They're really, really good question and important question. So because of this idea of trying to think right across the life course at what what can prevent the onset of um, multiple long-term conditions, we want to engage with people not only who have multiple health problems, although we do want to engage with, with those people very, very much, but we also want to engage other communities, other groups of people, including younger people who may be dealing with some of the the life issues that, uh, and, and risk factors that could lead to to future problems. So that's that's a really important point. The other groups of people we want to in, engage with are, are people who may be um, struggling in certain circumstances. So uh, it may be you know we mentioned earlier that uh, multimorbidity is more common in more deprived areas. And we, we don't want to shy away from that in this project. We want to engage with different communities of people uh, who may be wrestling with very different uh, issues in that context. Um, so yes, really, really important. And that will hopefully flow right through into the the, the impact and the output of this uh, project, not just that we're um, developing some sort of clever population level output but that we're, we're we're developing things that are that are of of value and use to people in um in those different groups as well uh, one thing i'd say on ppi as well is that actually not within this project but um previously um there's been work to show that actually um patients don't really like the term multimorbidity and actually i think you know the word morbid is a bit depressing isn't it and and i think that they prefer the 
the phrase multiple long-term conditions. So that's something that, you know, we're thinking about in the project. Also already within our own project, and we've had feedback from from one of our PBI colleagues that um, they don't really like the term burden because often patients associate that with themselves being a burden on the NHS or on carers, et cetera. But actually what we're really focusing on in our project is the burden for them, the extra work that they have to do. And I think it's just really important to have that clear distinction. But that language is so important for people because this is um, uh, something that they're dealing with all of the time. And to be able to have the correct labels that people feel uh, ownership of rather than being applied to them is, is so critically important. And actually, you know, previous work has shown that burden's not a term that patients like. And I think one questionnaire that was designed to look at that uh, extra work for people actually didn't include that term at all because it, people can find it off-putting. So, so burden feels problematic to me. What what do you mean by burden? It is a key word in our study. It's just that uh, we're, you know a whole part of it is trying to get at what that actually means. What do we mean by burden? What do we mean by burdensome, difficult, complex? Um, I, I was trying to explain it the other day and. Um, the, the patient I was talking to, person I was talking to, was saying that they didn't like the um, the word complex, as Amelia says, that, that, that you know doctors have a specific way of saying, you're a complex patient. And what that means in a doctor's head is that you, know, you might have a rare condition or a, 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 a difficult combination of things to, to work out medically what's the best thing to do. But the patient might hear it as, I'm complex. You want me out of you know out of your list or out of your surgery because you're I'm I'm in in the too difficult box, um, and we're trying to say well it's more about living with complexity you know living with several different conditions at once and dealing with the demands both of the condition be it pain mobility breathlessness whatever. And also the things you have to do to look after that condition, which might be taking medicines, attending appointments, having surgeries, being on dialysis, you know, all of these different things that people have to do makes life really complicated. And it's that idea that life is difficult, complicated, burdensome. Um, it's not about people being a burden or people being complex. It's about the experience of challenge that people face and how could we make that better. And certainly one of the models in the literature is called the cumulative complexity model is defining complexity as really the balance between the burden, you know, this work that Simon's just explained there about, you know, the actual symptoms of the conditions themselves and all that extra work that people have to do around managing those conditions and and the balance between the burden and what they describe in the literature as capacity, which is basically their resources to cope, you know, financial resources, um, family, friends, um, you know, mental health, you know, every, because, you know, the burden can be the mental as well as physical activities. So in the literature, it's, it's described as an imbalance between those two, because some people might have a lot of burden as we as we describe it but actually be okay dealing with that at this particular time in their life other people not so much and it depends around their their circumstances so i think defining complexity is really really hard and that's part of the work i'm doing at the moment well we're quite comfortable with the idea of there being an aging society this project is looking at people younger than 65 those who are um uh, uh, in the in the workforce um uh, active in the workforce why why that uh, uh, differentiation in terms of ages? 
there have been several studies now which show that while uh, having multiple long-term health problems is more common among older people and the, old, the, the oldest old, um, actually the number of people in society living with multimorbidity defined as having two or more long-term conditions, the absolute number is greater among people under 65. And obviously those people are also dealing with all of the, the challenges of, uh, as you mentioned, um, you know, trying to juggle uh, work and, and, and family and those sorts of things. The other thing comes from, um, the other thing is that that is changing. So over time, it seems to be the case that um, the degree of multimorbidity in younger age groups is increasing, and that's for a variety of reasons. So there was one study, for example, in the uh, English Longitudinal Study of Aging, which used uh, some some data uh, on people from 2002 to 2015. And it found that the age at, at which the majority of people, or the age group at which the majority of people became multimorbid, shifted across that time from being the early 70s, so between 70 and 74, to being the late 60s, 65 to 69. Now, that may not sound like a very dramatic shift, but it's just that idea that that if you get the majority of an age group, suddenly you've, you've got the majority of an age group juggling health problems and so on. And if that shift continues downwards, particularly among certain groups, you know, this is what we're trying to, this is why we're focusing on younger ages. Thank you. No, that's really it's really helpful and 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 concerning. Uh, should this be a trend, uh, uh, that this impact uh, uh, will will make itself felt earlier uh, for for more people uh, o- over that period of time. And I think Simon's already made this point, but just to reiterate that um, people living in the most um, de- deprived socioeconomic circumstances de- um, tend to develop can develop multi-morbidity 10 to 15 years earlier than those living in the least deprived. So there's a a definite health inequalities that relates to multiple long-term conditions. And and then various policy interventions that will need to be designed for those particular groups based on uh, uh, geography as well as uh, uh, the characteristics of, of the individuals as well. So that, that sharpening of the focus for, for a policy audience about who and when yeah. for those interventions to and be And that's exactly what we're trying to look at in the studies, yeah. And as we, as we look towards uh, government policy setting um as we've discussed previously the the maturity of the ecosystem between dhsc uh, department for health and social care uh, working with uh, national institute for health uh, research and the the funding that is put in place to be able to respond to the needs of the of the government department and indeed to prompt the government department to think about future needs is it, it is really quite a mature system in the uh, in, in uk knowledge exchange how is government articulating what it feels this challenge is and and how is NIHR responding to that in your view? So I think that this is clearly a priority for for government. I mean, addressing the the population and service challenges presented by multiple conditions, uh, I think it's fair to say it's a local and national um, strategic priority and, and a priority for the NIHR as well. 
So there was a government government uh, health and care white paper in 2021, um, and I'll, I'll just read some some words from that. It says, in recent years, we've seen our health and care system adapt and evolve to meet the challenges facing health systems around the world. Not only is our population growing in size, people are also living longer, but suffering from more long-term conditions. One in three patients admitted to hospital as an emergency has five or more health conditions, and this is up from one in 10 a decade ago. So I think that that really highlights that um, the, the government is saying this is an issue, we need to address it. And I think that, as you say, the the research funding bodies like NIHR and UKRI are responding to that. So um, the NIHR um, has, has put this in their areas for strategic focus in their 2021 operational priorities document, Best Research for Best Health. Um, two of these are, are particularly relevant. So improving the lives of people with multiple long-term conditions through research is one of those um, key strategic uh, focus areas. And the other one is about building capacity and capability in preventive preventative public health and social care research. So recognising the, the need for upstream work, the need for take into account the wider determinants of health in, in, in the social uh, setting and thinking about how we can build capacity for the future because this is going to be a challenge for decades to come. And um, just to, as well, just to point out that Mel B is part of a larger um, group of projects which have been funded by the NIHR. It's part of the AI for Multiple Long-Term Conditions funding call. And there have been two waves of funding. Actually, our MEL Development Award was funded in the first wave, along with 10 other development awards. And some uh, full research collaborations were funded in that in that wave. And the second wave, there have been more than six projects have been funded. And overall, um, more than £10 million has already been spent on this. So it's a, it's a, key, it's a key focus. And I think that's, that's really important because... Um, a paper from 2018 has projected that two thirds of adults over the age of 65 are expected to be living with multiple long-term conditions by 2035. And that's really not very far away. So it is something that, you know, I think that we can all relate to, certainly as I'm getting older, you know, living with two conditions by the age of 65, you know, is is something to be concerned about. No, certainly, and, and and it seems that both this is in scope for uh, uh, for for government priority, and indeed that the funding bodies are working in the way that they should do of being able to identify programs of work which will be able to uh, provide evidence to policymakers to be able to address uh, and understand some of this uh, uh, topic more more clearly. And I believe there have been um, other projects that have been funded by the MRC for multiple long term conditions also. Okay. Yes, I, th I, th I think that's right. And it builds off the back of um, a, a 2018 Academy of Medical Sciences policy report uh, around the fact that multimorbidity is a priority for global health research as well as just the, the UK. Um, the prevalence of multimorbidity is increasing across the world in, in, in lower and middle income countries as well as in um, higher income countries. So it's a, it's a big issue that we, we're, we're facing.
thank you so much both for your time uh, and for your uh, contribution to uh, as a policy pod and of course the uh, the work that you're you're doing with this project this is uh, the first of our conversations and we have uh, at least two more uh, scheduled uh, further down the the track where we'll be able to meet with other contributors towards the the research projects and get an understanding about how the work's progressing but in the meantime thanks very much for your time thank you very thank much, you very much. Thanks very much for listening to today's Policy Pod. If you'd like to leave feedback for us, please do so on your chosen platform. If you'd like to find out more information about our work, you can visit www.southampton.ac.uk forward slash public policy.